All right, well, good morning, church. Hey, listen, if you are new here today and I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at the church. And I want to begin today by saying hello to all of our High Point family. And so whether you are a part of our East Memphis body or perhaps you are a part of our Carville body that's tuning in right now, um, or perhaps you are a part of our church at home body, uh, regardless of how you are connecting with us today, we are so glad you are here. Now, before I jump in today, I want to take a moment and uh, I want to address uh, the subject and topic of discipleship. And if you have been here for any extended period of time, uh, you know that discipleship is something that we take very seriously here. Uh, Discipleship is something that is core to our culture, who we are and what we do. And in light of scripture, what we believe ultimately is that we have been given a very clear message, which is the gospel, but we have also have been given a very clear mission, which is discipleship. In light of scripture, we have been given good news, but we've also been given a great commission. And so in light of that, uh, one of the goals that we have established as the leadership of this church is that every person who calls themselves a high point or every person who has decided to be a part of this church family uh, will eventually be in in a discipleship relationship. And uh, there's nothing wrong with Bible studies and small groups, but we're not talking about another Bible study. We're not talking about another small group. When we talk about every person being in a discipleship relationship, what we mean by that is that you are either being poured into by someone or you are pouring yourself into someone. Or both. You can be discipling and be discipled at the same time. But in light of scripture and in light of where we believe God's calling us as a church, our goal and our vision is for every single person who calls this their church to be in a discipleship relationship. As a matter of fact, part of the reason why we did this series, a big reason why we did this series in the Sermon on the Mount is because we said in week one that the Sermon on the Mount is ultimately for disciples. It's Jesus explaining to us the life of a disciple, the lifestyle of discipleship. And so we did this series because we knew that at the end of this series, we were going to invite people to take a step towards discipleship. And the reason why I use the language of end of this series is because we have two weeks left. So it's this week and next week in our almost four month long series that we've done through the Sermon on the Mount. And so what I want to do in today and also next week is I want to invite you uh, to take a next step in your discipleship journey. And here's what essentially I mean by that. On our website, we have a landing page, a discipleship landing page, and it's highpointonline.com forward slash discipleship. And uh, that's the page I want you to go regardless of which type of person you are. So I want to talk to three different types of people. Uh, The first type of person is the person who's here, who after hearing uh, this series and after walking with us through this series, you're saying, I want to be discipled. Now that I have a better idea of what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus, I want to take the step of being discipled. And so if that's you, um, on that landing page, uh, highpointonline.com forward slash discipleship, there's a section where you can click on and essentially let us know that you are someone who wants to be discipled. And then uh, Amber Ware, our discipleship coordinator, will reach out to you and get you connected with someone to disciple you. But the second type of person I want to talk to 
is maybe you're a person who uh, have been walking with Jesus for a while now, and you feel that you're ready to actually start making disciples, but you don't really know what that looks like. Well, we also have uh, on that landing page an option for you, because every fall, what we do here at High Point is we have a course called DNA. And DNA is a discipleship course that is taught by me and by Pastor Parker over at Carville. And essentially what we do is we give you a theology of discipleship. And not only do we give you a theology of it, we also give you the praxology for it. So we teach you how to actually make a disciple. And so if you're someone who's saying, you know, I feel that the next step for me is to actually start the process of learning how to make disciples, then we would love for you to sign up for our DNA course. And what that would do is it'll put you on a waiting list and then Amber will reach out to you and get you connected with the next steps that you have to take. And the third type of person that I wanna talk to is the person here who's already in a discipleship relationship. Maybe someone is discipling you or maybe you are discipling someone. Listen, if you are part of our body, if you are part of our church, we would love for you to let us know if you are in a discipleship relationship. Even if the person discipling you doesn't go to our church. And the reason why is because churches tend to measure what they value, right? So churches are really good at measuring their attendance and they're really good at measuring their money, right? How much money do we have? How many people have shown up? But one of the things that we have decided as a leadership team, even as an elder board is, if we're going to be a disciple making church, then we have to measure how many people are in discipleship relationships. And the goal and the prayer is that over time, more of our people with every ministry year are in those type of relationships. And so if you are someone who is already in one of those, please let us know. Because uh, our goal and our hope is to resource you, to help you better do that. Uh, maybe you can sign up for DNA as well. Um, but we want to make sure that if this is something we're about, we want to hold ourselves accountable in that area. Is that cool? Everyone understand the three options? Awesome. All right. So, uh, with all that said, um, I want to shift gears, and uh, this morning we are jumping in to the next part of the Sermon on the Mount series. And uh, this morning our passage comes to us from Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, and we are going to be looking at verses 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, and if you are able, I would love for you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. If you are ready, say, I'm ready. Here's what it says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will, everyone say will, of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And uh, we thank you that because of the finished work of the gospel, we can approach you through the name of Jesus. The only reason why we are acceptable, the only reason why we are heard is because of the work that he's done in our place. And so as we come before you today, Lord, here's what I pray for. I, I wanna pray for the sermon here in a second, but I, I pray for our body, God. I pray that people here today would take a step towards discipleship. 
But Lord, at the end of the day, you are gonna hold us accountable, not just for uh, edifying and evangelizing, but also for equipping. And part of our job, you, it says in Ephesians 4 that part of my role, part of the elder's role is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And the work of the ministry is discipleship. And so I pray, Father God, that you would help our people, the people here who are saying, I am a part of this body. I pray that they would take the next step in their discipleship journey. And I pray that over time, this isn't a, a weekly thing, this isn't a monthly thing, this isn't even a yearly thing, Lord. This is gonna happen over decades. God, I pray that over time, you would make us more and more a disciple-making church, a disciple-making culture. Help us, Lord, to live out what we claim to believe in and help us, Lord, to daily, weekly, monthly, yearly become more and more of a disciple-making church. Lord, I also pray for this sermon. Lord, this is a very, very heavy passage. It's a very confrontational one but it's a very needed one. And, and like I've been praying over the last couple of weeks, I pray, Jesus, that you would help me to have the same urgency in my message that you did in your sermon. This is a very urgent topic. You are coming to the end of your sermon and you are now calling us to make a decision. And so I pray that not only would I uh, communicate what you say, but that I would also be able to display your urgency as we look at this text. God, I pray for the soils of people's hearts. I pray that you would be tilling. I believe that you are sovereign and that you have been preparing people for this morning, for this moment. And I pray that the soils of their hearts would be receptive to the seeds of your word and your work. And I pray that there would be people here today who come to a saving knowledge of you, a saving reliance on you. Lord, I pray in light of that, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Help me, Lord. Help us. We ask it and we beg it. In Christ's name. And all God's people said, you may be seated. All right, so this morning, uh, what we're gonna do is we are going to be looking at Matthew 7, 21 through 23, under three headings. So we are going to begin by looking at the marks of a false disciple, and then we are going to look at the motive, the motives of a false disciple. And then we're gonna conclude by looking at the mercy for a false disciple. So the marks, the motives, and the mercy. But I wanna begin this morning by looking at the marks of a false disciple. You see, because in this passage, what Jesus is doing is he is continuing to compare and contrast the two types of people. See, throughout this sermon, Jesus has been talking to two different types of people. And right around midway through chapter seven, he has stopped teaching new content and essentially he has arrived at the home stretch. And what he is doing now as he lands the plane on his sermon is he is calling every one of his hearers, both his original hearers and his current hearers, to make a decision. Which way are you going to go? Which option are you going to choose. And so he continues to compare and contrast. And like I mentioned in my prayer, his urgency has gone up. It's not that there wasn't urgency before, but it has definitely ratcheted up. And here's the thing about the urgency that Jesus is bringing. He's comparing and he's contrasting the two ways. So uh, a, few, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the two gates and the two roads and the two ends. And then last week, we talked about the two types of teachers and the two types of trees. 
And in this passage, he's going to talk to us about the two types of disciples. And then next week, Lord willing, as we conclude the series, he's going to talk to us about the two types of foundations. But today, he's going to specifically talk to us about the two types of disciples. Jesus says that there are two types. There are real disciples and there are fake ones. There are genuine disciples and there are counterfeit ones. And so in this text, he is comparing and contrasting the two types of disciples. And what's interesting about these two types of disciples is that they're both making different types of pleas to the Lord at the end of their lives. Now, Jesus taught us last week that there is such a thing as false teachers. And now he's teaching us this week that there is such a thing as false disciples. Now, the good news is, is that not everyone is a false disciples. Not everyone's false because Jesus actually says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. In other words, there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, and they will be accepted by Jesus. But there are some, Jesus actually says, there will be many in the text who will stand before him one day and they will say, Lord, Lord, and he will utterly and totally and completely reject them. So that is what Jesus is saying. Not everyone, but there are many. Jesus says that there's a greater number of people who confess Christ than there are a number of people who actually are committed to Christ. There's a greater number of people who are fans of Jesus than there are people who are actually followers of Jesus. There's a gap according to what Jesus is teaching us here in this text. Now, as Jesus sets the scene, he's actually giving us the scene. He's giving us the context, the, the backdrop by which we are to evaluate and learn from him today. He's giving us the scene of a believer or a false believer standing at judgment day before Jesus. That is the scene. That is the context. That is the backdrop for this message. And what he says is in the passage, these people who will stand before him on judgment day, they will plead their case and he will utterly and totally reject them. Now, here's the thing. Based on what has been taught in many pulpits in America, you would think that the type of people that are going to be rejected by Jesus at the end are the really, really bad people, are the rebellious people, are the irreligious people, the wayward people, the pagans. Well, yes, those people will be rejected as well. But Jesus isn't talking about those type of people. Jesus here isn't talking about the rebellious person. He isn't talking about the irreligious person. He's actually talking about the exact opposite. He's talking about the person who is religious, the person who is externally righteous, the person who is checking every box and doing every single right thing. He says, those will be the people who will be rejected. And we know that these people are better than we think because there are two things that they do in the text that reveal to us who they are. They're not the usual suspects that we think are going to be rejected by Jesus. We know that these people are not the rebellious, irreligious people because there are two things that they do. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The first thing that they have is they have the right words. And the second thing they have is they have the right works. The right words and the right works. They have religious language 
and they have a religious lifestyle. So we're going to look at both. We're going to look at their words, and then we are going to look at their works. The first thing that this group of people have is they have the right words. They have religious language. How do we know? Well, because there are two things that they say in the text that reveal to us that they have the right language and words. One, they call him Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord. Now, the Greek word for Lord there is the Greek word kyrios. And here's something you may not know. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. At some point, though, the Old Testament that was in Hebrew was translated into Greek. The Greek version of the Old Testament is referred to as the Septuagint. And here's what's interesting. Every time the word Yahweh or the name Yahweh was translated from Hebrew into Greek, the Greek word used was Kyrios, Lord. So these people don't see Jesus as just another guy. They see him as Lord. And not only that, but they say it twice. They say, Lord, Lord. And the reason why that's significant is because in Scripture, whenever something is mentioned twice, specifically a name, so Jesus says, Martha, Martha. David in the Old Testament says, Absalom, Absalom. When you see old name mentioned twice, it carries this zeal. There's a fervor. There's, a, there's a, an emotion happening. So this isn't just a cold, calculated faith. By mentioning it twice, these are people who had emotion for Jesus. These are the people who cry in worship services. Okay? So, so, so they had the right words, and one of those examples is that they called him Lord, Lord, with all the zeal and all the fervor and all the emotion that many Christians display. But not only were their words right in how they talked to him, but, they're also, but also their words were right in how they talked about him. Because it says that they prophesied. They prophesied. Now, the Greek word there for prophesy, it, it literally means to proclaim. It means to declare. It means to speak on behalf of. And it literally, the, because it has the, 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 the Greek word there is prophesy, it's not just proclaiming and declaring things in general, but it is proclaiming and speaking divine, divinely inspired things in particular. In other words, these people were actually preaching the inspired word of God. These people were not private with their faith. They were actually very public with their faith. They were sharing their faith. They were being evangelists and telling others the good news and sharing Bible verses on social media. They knew their word and they shared it openly. They weren't private with their knowledge. So these people not only had the right words, but they also had the right works. And how do we know that? Well, because in the passage, here's essentially what they say. They, their works were not just good works. They were the best works. They tell Jesus, get this, did we not cast out demons in your name? I don't know about you, but I've never uh, uh, done an exorcism in my life. I don't plan on ever doing an exorcism. I hope I never have to, right? But if someone shows up and they're applying for a job and on the CV they got exorcism, <laughs> I'm going to put you at the top of the list, all right? Like, I'm going to right? Exorcisms. 
And then not only that, but then it says that, did we not do mighty works? And that phrase there, mighty works, it refers to miraculous deeds, to powerful deeds and works displayed for your glory in your name. So not only did these people have the right works, words, not only did they have the right language, but they also had the right works. They had the right lifestyle. That is what we see here in this passage. These people had a very impressive resume. They had a very fruitful ministry. And here's what's interesting. In our cultural moment that we find ourselves in, here's what I would say. Every city, every region has beauty and has brokenness. So because we are made in the image of God, there is beauty in every city and every region. But because we have been marred by the sin of man, there's also brokenness in every city and every region. And I would say that one of the examples or one of the symptoms of brokenness here in Memphis is this cultural Christianity, is this superficial Christianity. Think about this. These people did way more than many of us ever have and yet stood before Jesus and were rejected. And there are people in this room who've done way less for Jesus and feel way more secure than they should. That is what plagues this city. There are many people in this city who claim Lord, Lord, and will one day be rejected by Jesus. These people, not only did they have impressive resumes, not only did they have fruitful ministries, these weren't just good people, these were the best people. Don't minimize this, don't overlook that. They weren't just good people, they were the best people. They were the people who end up being elders at a church, who end up being the pastors of a church, who end up being the deacons of the church. They literally, they had walked the aisle. They had prayed the prayer. They got baptized. They gave. They served. They went on missions trips. They did the whole nine. And yet they stood before Jesus and they were rejected. Utterly and totally and completely rejected. Depart from me, Jesus says. That's what we see. And so the question that we have to wrestle with is why? Why are these people being rejected by Jesus? If they have the right words and they have the right works, why would they be rejected? If they have the right marks, why would they ever be rejected? Well, to answer that question, we got to look at the next point, which is the motives or the motive of a false disciple, the motive. You see, because if the question that we are wrestling with today is how can these people have all the right external marks and yet still be rejected? The answer is this, they have the right external marks, but they have the wrong internal motives. They have the right words and the right works, but they have the wrong why. Their why is wrong internally. And so it doesn't matter what they are doing externally. That's what we see here 
in the text. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, well, how do you know these people's hearts? Like, who are you to judge someone's heart? How do you know that these people had the wrong motives? How do you know that these people had the wrong why? Well, I would say that in order for us to understand their motives, in order for us to understand their why, we actually are going to look at the same evidence we looked at in the first point. So in the first point, we looked at their words and we looked at their works. I'm going to look at those same two things, but instead of it being evidence for them, it's going to now be evidence against them. The words they use reveal their motive and the works they rely on reveal their motive. The first thing I want you to see is I want you to see the words they use. And look what it says in verse 22. It says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? We, we, don't don't miss the words there. Don't miss the words they're using. They're standing before the risen king of the universe, the Lord of Lords, the king of kings, and they're talking about themselves. We, me, I. Don't miss that. Instead of standing before Jesus and talking about Jesus, they're standing before Jesus and talking about themselves. Personal pronouns. Me, I, we. But here's the thing. Not only do their words reveal their motive, but I would say that their works reveal their motive as well. You see, because when they stand before Jesus, they tell Jesus, hey, you should let us into heaven, not because of what you've done for us vertically, but because of what we've done for you horizontally. They're they're giving their resume here. I did this, and I did this, and I went there, and I gave this. Their works, the the works they're relying on is not the vertical finished work of Jesus, is their horizontal ongoing works that they're doing. You should accept me, not because of what you've done, but because of what I do. This is why Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor in London for a long time, he says that whenever he would sit down with one of his congregants and ask him about their walk with Jesus, if the person would start off with, you know, I, I'm a pretty good person, but, you know, I'm just, I, I'm just trying my best. You know, just trying to get my act together, you know, trying to clean myself up a little bit. I'm going to church a little bit, giving a little bit, starting to read my Bible, praying a bit. Yeah, I just, I just, I just really hope, I just really hope that God's going to accept me. I'm really giving it my best. He says, anytime someone said that, he knew they were a false convert. Because someone who actually is a real disciple would never say that. It's not a, oh, I'm a pretty good person. I just need a little help. It's like, no, I'm a spiritually dead person who needs resurrection. I'm not a decent chap who just need a, a, lend, who just need a, a hand. No, no. I'm a terrible, depraved person who needs a savior. Amen? That's the distinction. The problem is, though, is that a lot of these people, they, 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 the, the reason why their words don't line up, the reason why their works don't ultimately line up, the reason why they're relying on their words and on their works is because many of them have heard a false gospel. You see, last week, if you were sitting here or you were tuning in online, you might have been listening in and being like, man, this dude's harsh. Like, why is he condemning all these brothers and sisters in Christ? They love Jesus. They're giving it their best. Look how many Instagram followers they have. 
But here's the problem. The problem is, is that a false gospel is a false gospel. And a false gospel produces false disciples. And a lot of these people, the reason why they are false disciples is because they heard a false gospel. They heard a, a wide road gospel. That's why we said last week that on the wide road, you can literally have a, a, a religious Pharisee and a rebellious pagan right next to each other. And they look totally different, but the reason why they're both on the wide road is because they're focused on themselves. They're focused on their works and on their words and are th on their vertical, horizontal dues. We said last week that there's two types of false gospels that permeate the American church. There's the old school false gospel, which is the don't church. Some of you grew up in the legalistic don't church. Hey, don't do this and don't do that and don't go there. And if you... Don't do stuff enough. Maybe one day Jesus will accept you. That's the don't church. And then right around the late 60s and 70s, the, the mega church movement started. And the mega church movement, their whole brand was, we are not your grandmother's church. We're cool. We're relevant. We're not a don't church. We're a do church. So instead of don't do this and don't do that, every sermon is two steps on how to be better at this and three steps on how to be better at that and seven steps on how to be a better spouse and four steps on how to be a better child and eight steps on how to be financially free. And on the surface, they look so different, but they are the same thing. They are the same exact thing. Whether you grew up at a don't church, a lot of us left the don't church and went to a do church and thought, oh, this is so different. <laughs> no. It's two sides of the law coin. In both cases, whether it's don't or do, it's up to you. The gospel is not a horizontal don't or a horizontal do. It's a vertical done. And so the problem is a lot of these people grew up in either don't or do. And so when they go before Jesus, they're going to talk about what they didn't do or what they did do. And Jesus says, no, that's not what gets you in. It's not what you've done for me, it's what I have done for you. That's why false teachers need to be called out. Because false teachers preach false gospels and false gospels produce false disciples. They believed a wide road gospel. They stood before Jesus and instead of relying on his vertical done, they are relying on their horizontal do, their horizontal don't. You know what? In scripture, we actually have examples of these type of people. Oh, one example is the elder brother. The elder brother is a perfect example of someone who was relying not on God's word and God's work, but on his words and his word. And it's funny that at the end of the story, the one that makes it into the father's presence is the rebellious younger brother, not the religious elder brother. Because when his brother gets back and he gets all these things for free, he gets grace pretty much. He doesn't know what to do with grace. And so he gets angry and says to the father, all these years I have served you. That's what a lot of people are going to say to Jesus when they get to his presence. All these years I've served you. All these years I've slaved for you. And you're not going to let me in? The elder brother is the only one in the story that doesn't make it in. Not because he thought he was too bad, but because he thought he was too good. Here's the thing, and I really, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, uh, kind of empathize and sympathize with these people. 
because I'm someone who didn't grow up in church and I was a straight pagan for 18 years of my life, like when I came to Jesus, it was like a stark difference between who I was and, and now who I am. But it's really hard. I got to give you this. If you grew up in church and you've pretty much been a good person your whole life, never really rebelled, always did what your parents said, got good grades, went to college, checked off every box. I don't blame you for thinking your resume is good enough. Like I get it. But I need you to hear it's not good enough. Because get this, we're not just sinful because of external conduct. We are sinful because of our internal condition. So even if you never did anything bad on the outside, you are sinful and depraved on the inside. We don't just have a hand issue, we have a heart condition. That's what we see here. Another example of it is the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, he goes before Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Right, and everyone's expecting Jesus. That's the, the, the tee, the ball set up on the tee, just hit it out of the park, man. This guy's ready. What must I do to be saved? Well, let me give you John three sixteen. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now get this. The reason why Jesus says that is not because he wasn't God. He is God. But he knew the rich young ruler didn't think he was God. Why are you calling me good if you don't think I'm God? Right? But a lot of people think the problem with the rich young ruler was his money. And that is part of the problem. But there's something that happens before that that's even worse. Because Jesus says to him, have you obeyed the commandments? And he's like, yes, all of them since my youth. <laughs> since your youth, bro? I wish my daughter tried to say some nonsense like that. <laughs> they can't follow the commands for three minutes, let alone their whole childhood. Since my youth, I have. That's how self-reliant and self-righteous that man was. So the money thing was just a fruit. The root of the problem was that he thought his words and his works were sufficient. He didn't need a savior because he was his own savior. So the elder brother and the, the, uh, the, eld, uh, the rich young ruler are examples of people who stood before Jesus and said, let me in. Look what I've said. Look what I've done. Look where I've been. And Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. I said this last week in one of the services, but I want to make sure I repeat it here. Uh, Dr. Frank Turek, who's an apologist, he says this. He says, the reason why so many people who grow up in church walk away from Christianity when they get into college, he says, the reason why they are so easily talked out of it is because they were never actually talked into it. One of the guys on our staff, he told me that. He said, look, the reason why when I went to college, I went crazy was because growing up in the church I grew up in, I never heard the actual gospel. It was don't do this or do this. So I thought, I don't want religion, so I'm gonna do whatever I want. But the gospel is not a don't message. It's not a do message. It's a done message. And so they get talked out of it because they were never actually talked into it. Think about it. Any other worldview they take, if you're giving them a ladder, every other worldview is a ladder. So it's not that hard of a jump. I've been climbing a ladder my whole life. So just a brand new ladder to climb up. But Christianity is not a ladder. It's a cross. 
You don't climb up to God, God comes down to you. So a lot of people get talked out of it because they were never actually talked into it. That is the, the danger. And so what you see with these people is that they're standing before Jesus and their ultimate hope, their ultimate plea is not his final word and his finished work. It's their words and their works. They are relying on themselves. Now, here's something I want to say. I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. In this series and forever, because it's so important. To understand what Jesus is saying here, you have to go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is why throughout this whole sermon series, we've been going and connecting parts of the sermon together. Because if you miss the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to miss what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says the first beatitude, according to Jesus, the first one is blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Many of you have heard me talk about this. And I'm going to keep talking about it. Because if you miss that, you miss the whole thing. That is the narrow gate. Because poor in spirit there doesn't mean that you just have a little bit of spiritual debt. That you need a loan. Hey, give me a hand for a little bit while I get my finances in order. No, no, no. Poor in spirit there means spiritually bankrupt. It means to be utterly and completely destitute. Jesus says you only will be, get an inheritance when you admit you bring nothing. He says, I will give you everything if you admit you bring nothing. But if you need to bring something, you will get nothing. See, because some of us, we're willing to give up our rebellion for Jesus. We're not willing to give up our religion for Jesus. I'm willing to confess the things that I've done wrong, the bad stuff. But I'm not willing to confess the good stuff I've done for the wrong reasons. Because in Isaiah 64, it says that even our good works are like filthy rags. He's not talking about the bad stuff. Even the good stuff is like filthy rags because many of it, most of it is religiously motivated. A lot of people can confess their rebellion to Jesus, but a lot of people are not willing to admit their religion to Jesus. That's what he's getting after. It's funny because after he brings up that parable, the beatitude of being poor in spirit, he then says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But if you don't embrace the first beatitude, there's no reason to hunger and thirst for righteousness because the only people that hunger and thirst for righteousness are the ones that know they don't have any. But if you think you have some semblance of righteousness, why would you hunger and thirst for something you already have? Jesus says, when it comes to my relationship with you, if you bring something, you get nothing. But if you bring nothing, you get everything. That is the narrow gate. That is being poor in spirit. So get this. Let me, let me make this very real right now. According to Jesus, there are two people in this room right now. And they both have walked the aisle. They both have prayed the prayer. They both have been baptized. They both read their Bibles. They both give sacrificially. They both serve faithfully. And one of them will stand before him and he will say, I never knew you. They're sitting right next to each other in the aisle and in, in, in the row. And one of them will be accepted and one of them will not be. Here's why. Because one of them is doing it for salvation. 
The other one is doing it from salvation. One of them is doing all those things for God's love. The other one is doing it from God's love. That's a totally different uh, motivation. If I obey, a lot of people obey, but it's not out of faith, it's out of fear. And if I keep obeying, maybe one day God will accept me. When, when you approach it that way, you're doing it for God's love. You're not doing it from God's love. You're doing it for God's forgiveness, not from God's forgiveness. You're doing it for God's grace, not from God's grace. This is why we said a couple weeks ago, the reason why Christianity is different, the reason why Christianity is, a, is narrow, the gates and the way, is because with every other religion, every other worldview, the gate comes at the end. That's what we said. Because the gate is the moment of judgment. The gate is the moment where you determine, am I in or am I out? With every other worldview, the gate comes at the end and you think, man, I, I really hope I get accepted. I really hope I checked all the boxes. I really hope I met, I met all the standards. But what's beautiful about the gospel and what's beautiful about Christianity is that in Christianity, the gate comes at the beginning. Jesus doesn't say exit by the narrow gate. He says enter by the narrow gate. In other words, in the gospel, when you place your faith in Jesus, the judgment has already been given. The declaration has already been made. The forgiveness has already been offered. There's a freedom in that. And so the people that go in through the narrow gate, when they stand before Jesus, they say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I bring nothing. But I admitted that years ago. I'm already accepted and approved, not because of what I've done, but because of what you've done. And they, they, when they stand before Jesus, they, they plead based on his words and his work, not their words and their work. You see the difference there? I, I really need you to understand what I'm saying here because there are people here today who still don't get it. There are people here today who just have too much Memphis in them. <laughs> too much religion in them. I, I, I say this with no exaggeration whatsoever. This is a life or death sermon. In the text, there's a phrase that Jesus uses that actually confuses a lot of commentators. There's, I, I haven't studied a passage in a while where there's so much division among, around what a statement means. In the text, Jesus says, right at the end, he calls them workers of lawlessness. Workers of lawlessness. Now, here's the thing. What most commentators do, not all, but what most commentators do, because the word lawless can mean someone who's rebellious, someone who's irreligious, is what they say is, oh, what this word means is that these people are lying. They're liars. They don't have good works. They don't have the right words. They've been lying the whole time. But here's why that can't mean that. This is why I agree with the other side of that commentator say. It can't mean that they've been lying the whole time because nowhere in the passage does Jesus call them liars. He doesn't say, no, you didn't do that. He doesn't say, no, you didn't call me Lord, Lord. No, you didn't prophesy in my name. No, you didn't do my, never in the text does Jesus call them liars. He takes them for what they're saying. Yes, you did all those things, okay? So if it can't mean that they're actually secretly rebellious, 
that they're secretly sinners, like, you know, you know hiding behind, you know, behind closed doors. Here's what it actually means when he calls them workers of lawlessness. Because that Greek word lawlessness can actually refer to someone. Someone who's lawless is someone who has a low view of the law. Someone who refuses to submit to the entire law. So here's what this means. And I know many of you have never heard this before, but track with me here. A lawless person can be a rebellious person, but a lawless person can also be a religious person. Because if to be lawless means to refuse to submit to the law or to have a low view of the law, then I would argue that no one has a lower view of the law than a religious person. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. How can a religious person have a low view of the law? No one obeys the law more than a religious person. Well, here's why a religious person has a very low view of the law. Because if you look at the perfect, righteous law of God and you say, yeah, I got that. I can do that. Hey, Jesus, go save somebody else. I got this. Don't worry about me. If you look at the law of God and you think you can obey it in your own strength, not only do you have a low view, but you are the rich young ruler who says, since my youth, of course, I've been killing it. So no one's maybe ever told you this before, but I would argue that religious people actually have an even lower view of the law than rebellious people. Because a rebellious person will be like, I'm not even going to try. But the religious person that looks at the law of God and says, yeah, I got it. I got, I, got, I got a good chance to do this in my own strength. That's actually someone who has a very low view of the law. And here's the problem. When you have, when you have a low view of the law, you end up having a low view of the Lord. Because if I look at the law, and instead of the law exposing my sin, it empowers me in my religion, then I don't need a savior. If I have a low view of the law, I will have a low view of the Lord. But a person with a high view of the law is the person who looks at the law and says, there's no way I can ever obey that in my own strength. I need help. Someone's gonna have to rescue me because I cannot do this in my own strength. But the religious person, the Pharisees, couldn't admit it. And that's why instead of having Jesus die for them, they killed him. Because they couldn't deal with someone who was telling them they weren't good enough. It's not the rebellious people that killed Jesus. It's the religious people that killed Jesus. So a religious person actually has a lower view of the law than anyone else. Because they look at the law and say, I got it. And when you tell the law that, you're essentially telling Jesus the same thing. I don't need a savior because I am my own savior. That's what we see. So many of us, if we're not careful, can be like the tax collector, sorry, like the Pharisee who in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, the, the tax collector, the, 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 the Pharisee sitting there thinking, oh, look at me. I've done this and I've done that and I'm so thankful I'm not like that guy over there. And the tax collector is like, be merciful to me, a sinner. I got no other option. And Jesus says, the one who gets accepted by God is not the religious one, is the repentant one. 
So here's the good news. And I'm giving you the good news before I'm supposed to give you the good news, but let me, let me say this. I just thought of this. If, like me, your life is, was a mess before Jesus, you, you don't have it figured out, you didn't grow up in church, praise God. Because nothing can save you but Jesus. You don't need a religious resume to be accepted. The thief on the cross is just as much in heaven as the apostle Paul is. That brother didn't get baptized. That brother didn't walk the aisle. That brother didn't do growth track. <laughs> so if you're sitting here and you don't think you're good enough, you're not. That's the whole point of the gospel. So you can have the right information at the head level the right implementation at the hand level, but the wrong inspiration at the heart level. These people assumed it was a religious contract and not a redemptive relationship. Get this, they were so focused on performing for Jesus that they actually missed the person of Jesus. They were so focused on performing for him that they missed the person of Jesus. They missed it. And we know that because Jesus actually says to them, you missed it. And not just it, you missed me. Jesus in the text says, I never knew you. Now, here's what you might not realize. When he says, I never knew you, he's not talking about the presence of ignorance. He's talking about the absence of intimacy. So in other words, Jesus knows everything. So it's not like he's like, who are you? I've never seen you before. Where'd you come from? That's not what he means when he says, I never knew you. He's not talking about ignorance. He's talking about intimacy. He's like, I never knew you. And get this, you might think you know me, but I never knew you. And the word there is never. In the Greek, the word there is never. I know I, not all of you are Hebrew scholars, but never means never. So people are like, oh, you can fall away. No, no, no. He never knew them. It's not like they were in and they fell away. No, no, they were never in at any point. He says, I never knew you, ever, at any point, in any season. Now, think about why this is so important. One of the mistakes I think we make in the church is that when we share the gospel with people, we, we, man, we talk about hell a lot, and I think we should bring up hell. But I think we're emphasizing the wrong thing when we tell people, you better come to Jesus because hell is really hot. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We don't know what gnashing means, but it sounds bad. <laughs> Here's the problem when we only emphasize that. Jesus here declares a verdict and never brings up hell. The punishment, according to Jesus, is that you are departed from him. It, 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 hell is bad, not just, not just because of the place you go to, but because of the person that's not there. Don't miss that. The punishment is depart from me. Why does he say that? Well, I would say that the reason why Jesus says it, the reason why he says depart from me is because what he is saying to that person is it was never actually about me. Your whole Christian life was never about me. It was always about you. It was about your reputation. It was about your resume. 
It was about your words and your works. So if it was never about me, why do you want to be with me now? That's why the punishment is depart from me. Because it was never about him. It was about the person. And Jesus says in the text that it's the person who does the Father's will. That those who will be accepted are those who do the Father's will. And even that implies relationship with Jesus. Because if you think about it, the only way God can be your father is if Jesus is your brother and vice versa. So even in that, he's implying a relationship. He says that it is those who do the Father's will that actually know him and are known by him. And he says something similar in Mark chapter 3. In Mark 3, look what Jesus says about the will of God. He says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. See, but the question I think we have to wrestle with is, if Jesus is saying that it is those who do the will of God that will actually know him and be known by him, then what is the actual will of God? What is the will of God that Jesus says we all have to fulfill? Well, he tells us in John 6 what the will of God is. It says in John 6, 38 through 40, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given me, but raise it up on the last day. And listen to this. This is the will of the Father that we all need to do to be known by Jesus. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what is the will of the Father? Jesus says is to look on the Son and believe in him. The reason why these people get rejected is because they never did the, word, the work of the Father, the will of the Father. They didn't look at the Son, they looked at themselves. They didn't believe in Jesus, they believed in themselves. The will of the Father is to look on the Son and to believe in him. And in that same passage, the verse right before it, John 6, 37, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, everyone say me, whoever comes to me, I will never drive out. The reason why these people at the end of the story in this passage are driven out is because they never actually went to Jesus. They liked the idea of Jesus. They sang about the work of Jesus, but they never actually believed in the person of Jesus. They never actually did the work of the Father and the will of the Father. And so they get to the end of their life and they are rejected. Not because Jesus is ignorant of them, but because he doesn't have any intimacy with them. If there's anyone who ever could have used the I have enough righteousness card, I have enough words and enough works, it was Paul. Paul had a better resume than even these people. And yet he says that when he came to know Christ, that resume, all those things that he did, all those things that he said, he said were like rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. So you might be sitting here this morning and you have the right words. You might be sitting here this morning and you have the right works. But the question is, do you have the right why? Because you can have all the marks 
of a disciple and not have the motive of a disciple. So we've seen the marks, we've seen the motives, and uh, I want to conclude this morning by looking at the mercy for a false disciple, the mercy. See, because even though this passage is very heavy, even though this passage is very hard-hitting, I would argue that in this passage, Jesus actually displays a lot of mercy, a lot of grace. And you're like, wait, what? How is there any mercy or grace in this passage? Here's why. There's actually two reasons why Jesus displays mercy. The first reason is because he gives us a warning. And the second reason is because he provides for us a way, a warning and a way. The first reason why Jesus shows us mercy and grace in this passage is because he provides for us a warning. Listen, we said last week that one of the reasons why false teachers are false teachers is because they don't ever warn anyone. Everything's great. False optimism. It says in Second uh, Timothy 4 that false teachers tickle people's ears. They don't convict people's hearts. And so one of the reasons why Jesus is showing us mercy and grace, even though it doesn't feel like it, is because he's actually telling us the truth. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. He's not, tell, he's not keeping this from us so we find out on that day. He's telling us so we can find out today. So that you're not finding that out when you're standing in front of him. So he shows that he's not a ravenous wolf. He shows that he's not a false teacher. But instead he shows that he is a good teacher. He is a good shepherd because he tells us the truth. He loves us enough to warn us. Jesus Christ is so gracious and so loving that even in this passage, in this sermon, knowing full well in a few months the, the religious leaders were going to kill him, he's warning them about that day. So the first reason why this passage is extremely merciful and gracious is because he gives us a warning. But I would argue that the second reason why this passage is merciful and gracious is because he actually provides for us a way. He gives us a way out. He gives us a way of salvation so that we don't have to receive this judgment on the last day. You see, here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus understood that ultimately what we needed was not more dues. So, so if you're sitting here right now, you think, oh, Will's going to give me six more things to do. No, no, no. Jesus saw us and he knew that the only way out, the only way of salvation he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He knew that what we needed was not more dues. What we needed was a done. What we needed was not more rules. What we needed was a relationship. What we needed was not more religion. What we needed was redemption. Church, what we needed was not more law. What we needed was love. And what we needed was not more horizontal steps. What we needed was a vertical salvation. And praise be to God that Jesus didn't give us what we thought we wanted. He gave us what we actually needed. And in the text, it says that those who do the Father's will will be accepted by him. But here's the problem. If you're anything like me, I could do the Father's will for maybe an hour. Two tops. Right? But to do the Father's will day in, day out. That is a burden that none of us can carry. 
But what's beautiful about Jesus is that he came to do the Father's will in our place. Throughout, we even saw, we saw it here. He says, I came to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus came to do the Father's will, not only in his life, but also in his death. Even in the garden, he says, not my will, but your will be done. And so praise be to God that Jesus came to live the life we couldn't live. And then he died the death we should have died. That is what Jesus did for you and for me. And because he did the Father's will, you would think that at the end of his life, he would be accepted, he would be approved, he would be brought in. And yet we are told that at the end of his life, he is killed, he is crucified, he is crushed. Why? Because in Isaiah 53, what we discover is that the Father's will was to crush Jesus. Why? He crushed him so that he wouldn't have to crush you. At the cross, Jesus experienced death so that we might experience life. At the cross, he experienced wrath so that we might experience love. At the cross, he experienced forsakenness so that we might experience forgiveness. He did it to him so that he wouldn't have to do it to you. That is the good news of the gospel. And Jesus is so good. Jesus is so good that he didn't come to be a ravenous wolf like the false teachers. He came to be a sacrificial lamb. And unlike the false teachers, instead of misleading us, he loved us. Instead of lying to us, he confronted us. Instead of exploiting us, he died for us. And he did it in order to provide a way for you and for me. And so now for those who place their faith in the words of Jesus and in the work of Jesus, you are accepted not because of your righteousness, but because of his. Not because of your performance, but because of his performance. Not because of your words, but because of his words. Listen, at the end of the day, when you stand before Jesus, What's going to matter is not what you said about him. It's what, about, it's what he says about you. What's going to ultimately matter on that day is not what you did for him. It's what he's done for you. It's not what you sacrificed for him. It's what he sacrificed for you. That is the gospel. Listen, in Christianity, the news, the bad news is way worse than any of us thought. Way worse. But because of that, the good news is infinitely greater than any of us could have imagined. So let me summarize it this way. When you place your faith in Jesus, when you go through the narrow gate, when you have the right why, not just the right words and works, you still look like the religious person. That's why I said earlier, you can have two people that look exactly the same. You still have the right words. You still have the right works. But what's different now is you have the right why. You're not doing it for salvation. You're doing it from salvation. You're not doing it for God's love. You're doing it from God's love. That is freeing, church. That's what happens when the gate comes at the beginning. That's what happens when the work is already finished. So now your words and your work are not the root of your salvation. They are the fruit of your salvation. In John chapter six, Jesus is asked a question. And the question is this, what must I do to do the works of God? That's a great question, right? 
And I guarantee you that when that question was asked, everyone got their notebooks out. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? What, what is the work of God? What is the thing that I got to do more than anything else, Jesus? And in response to the question, what must I do to do the works of God? Jesus says, believe in the one whom he has sent. So the work of God is not to behave. The work of God is to believe. And when the disciples come back in Luke 10 from their second missionary trip, mission trip, and they're excited, they're like, Jesus, we did this and we did that, and it was awesome. And Jesus says, rejoice, not in the fact that you are casting out demons, but rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. Amen. Jesus says, rejoice not in what you do for me. Rejoice in what I have done for you. Amen. Uh, welcome to Church at Home today. Such a great lesson from Pastor yes. Will again uh, as we continue almost concluding. Uh, next week, I think, we'll conclude our yes. <laughs> Sermon on the Mount series. So we're so excited that you've joined us today. Um, thank you for being with us. Uh, my name is Stephen Lyles. I am the Director of Business Ministries here at High Point, uh, and this is Renee. Hello. <laughs> Renee Armstrong. She is our, our Go-Director. Um, and then who do we have over there, Renee? Let's see. We've got Danielle moderating. All so right. everybody say a quick hello to Danielle and mm -hmm. thank her for her service today. Um, also, um, if you're needing to respond um, in any way, um, there is a QR code. Um, I'm told, I think it's top right of the screen or over here to me. I don't know yeah. what that would be to you. Yeah. I guess that would be left to you. <laughs> So we are in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, as we continue this conversation about uh, false things. Last mm. week it was false teachers. So this week it's actually false disciples. And mm. uh, so just a kind of a heavy lesson, but also like it's uh, you, some, some things you read and you just kind of read past them. Yeah. So this time is like, wow, I've never seen that again. Mm -hmm. Like. How could I have read this a hundred times so and still times. not see that? But that's exactly what happened again today. Uh, let's read that real quick. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Mm -hmm. um, just... Again, just a great lesson. Um, he talks about the marks of a false disciple, the motives of a false disciple, and the mercy for a false disciple. Yes. Um, and we've got some questions that we'd like to work through. Yes. And so, Renee, what, what, what did you see or what did you pull out of this message Oh, today? my goodness. You know, I think one of the biggest things um, that kind of struck me um, was just in the motives like we can say the right things, we can do the right things, but the motive behind the why we're doing them can be completely different. Yeah. Um, and he even mentioned um, there's this for not from, like the four versus from, that um, we don't do this or work for God's love. Yeah. We work from God's love or for salvation, right. from salvation. Um, that 
that I think is just such a beautiful reminder um, for all of us, but also a good way to just, just kind of check your heart. And, yeah. The mm. fact that he said that there could be two people mm-hmm. sitting next to each other who are doing the same things, they look the same, mm-hmm. but that the fact of the matter is, is that one of them is doing the things for the right reasons and the other one is not. Yes. And that's the difference. Like the, the heart is the difference. And just a great reminder. Well, and I think another thing about that is it points to a self-reliance, self-centeredness versus a gospel reliance or gospel-centeredness. Do you mean to say we have a problem with self (laughs) Believe it or not, we love (laughs) ourselves a lot. (laughs) Yeah, just the fact that he brought out that these people who Mm. who, um, were false disciples are using their words Mm -hmm. and their works to say, look at me, Jesus, Mm -hmm. look what I've done. Look what we've accomplished. Look what we've said. Yeah. And, and his, his words are depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. There's no intimacy there, right? Yes. Yes. Just a great reminder, uh, that you can do things but you can do them for the wrong reasons. Yeah. The wrong whys. So, and then he brought up an example of that, um, which was the elder brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know, the fact that he used the elder brother. And this was from a long time ago. Yes. Like one of our long. sermons. Oh, it's been a while. Yeah. For first, maybe one of the first series that Pastor Will did here mm-hmm. about, um, uh, about the prodigal son and, and the elder brother being the one that in, in, ends up not being in the presence of the father because he thought, look, I've climbed this ladder this whole time, you know, thinking that that's what he had to do. And that's simply not the truth. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was just a great reminder today of those facts and of those truths. Mm-hmm. Uh, our second question is, if horizontal good works are not what makes us right with God, but only the vertical work of Christ, then what should a Christian's relationship with good works actually be? Which is mm-hmm. a great question. Yes. Practical question. Yes. And so we go to Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, like Pastor Will did, and read, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that you so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do you know what's really what you see right from that scripture is it's not about self Mm -hmm. like he says it's his workmanship it's he says that you should not boast in this because you didn't do anything (laughs) it's not about you so again it's that four verses from yes you know that that idea. So yes. Just a great reminder. And again, it all goes back to our motivation. What What is our heart's motivation? And um, that's a drum that I have to beat often. Um, given my job, you know, I, I get people to go, to go and do. Um, but I have to beat that drum. But honestly, not just for the people who I'm serving with. I have to beat that drum for myself right. daily. I need that daily reminder. Um what you know just to examine my heart and ask why am i doing this um is this out of trying to gain god's approval or is it because i know through christ i'm already loved and approved and accepted um so again it just shines that light on our tendencies to be (laughs) self-centered 
Yeah, to continue to think that the Bible itself, the the the, the work and word of God, mm-hmm. is about us yeah. is such a corruption of of what the Scripture yes. really is, of what the gospel really is, and just to remind ourselves that it's not about us; Mm-mm. it's about what He did. It's mm-hmm. about His work. Um, and so, just a again, great reminder today. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to read John six. 38 through 40, because Pastor Will uses this in one of his questions, and we'll talk about that in just a second. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day day mm. and so the question is in John 6 29 <clears throat> um, Jesus says that the work of God is to believe the one whom God has sent um, what why are we as believers so quick to forget the gospel truth why are we mm. so quick to assume that the work of God is to behave and mm. not to believe um, and this verse is just very clear like he spells it out for us. The will of the Father is to believe in the Son whom he has sent. Like that's that's the will of the Father. Yes. In the garden, <laughs> Pastor Will referenced this, in the garden, Jesus says, let my, not my will, but your will be mm-hmm. done. Um, but the will of the Father is to know Jesus. Like it's so plain here. Yes. And somehow we forget of that. We, we muck it up that. every we, time. Yeah, we, we don't. <laughs> We, we forget. It's yes. so easy for us to forget. Well, I think it goes back to this illusion of control. I think if it's something that we can do, we can behave, we can check this off of our list, um, we feel like we have some semblance of control. Yeah. Um, when in fact, if you haven't been told today, we don't have any control. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me tell you that today. That's we right. don't have control. Um, but... I think this should also give us such great hope yeah. that it doesn't rely on me. Stephen, it doesn't rely on you. Yeah, that's such and it a great doesn't word. rely on you. <laughs> it, it, it's Jesus. That's it. Just believe in the one whom yeah. the Father sent. Yeah. Um, I also loved the, the, the lawlessness part that he mm. talked about, about um, and that, that changed things for me, mm-hmm. that the lawlessness there is not about... Uh, anything but having a poor or a very low view of the law that the people who have a very low view of the law are the ones that are practicing lawlessness mm-hmm. and and I think specifically he's talking about the religious leaders there that they thought hey I can do this in my own strength yes. I can do all this I can keep all these laws therefore you know it's all about that yes and it's and it's actually not. Mm-mm. And the fact that they thought that was so arrogant, right? Yes. To think that they could keep the law. Um, oh. And that's actually what lawlessness is, is mm-hmm. that such a very small view of the law, mm-hmm. of God's law there. Um, and, and the fact that, um, that they could say, I can do it in my own strength. Yes. And, and the truth is, is we can't. We can't. We just cannot. Never have been able to, yeah. never will be able to. <laughs> What, what did he say there? The, the, um, that lawlessness was not the, not a religious contract, but a redemptive relationship. Yeah, but he yeah. he also said that it was the absence of Ooh, intimacy. Yes, 
it, you know, yeah. Oh, not the presence of ignorance, yeah. but the absence of intimacy. Yeah. And, yes. And so when, you know, Jesus is talking there and he says, depart from me, mm-hmm. he's saying that because there is an absence of intimacy. Yes. It's not that they didn't do the right things because they yeah. obviously did some of the right things. It was that they didn't know him. Yeah. He didn't that know relational them. piece. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just a reminder that it's about the heart. It's not about you. Uh, it's about what God has done and what God continues to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're so grateful to be a part of that. Like, yes. I praise God that I'm a part of, of that work that mm-hmm. he has done. Like, mm-hmm. that, that's amazing to me. Yeah. Um, we're so grateful that you joined us today. We hope that you will come back next week for the, the final sermon of the yes, Sermon on the Mount. Yes, we finish yeah. it up next week. It's so, mm-hmm. That's so cool. Um, it's gone really fast, though. To me, it feels like yeah, it has. it really has gone really fast. Um, and look, if you're here in the area and you want to come check us out locally in person, please do so. We invite you to do that here at East Memphis or at Carterville. Um, But we are here for you, Church at Home. And if you need anything, please don't hesitate to use the barcode mm-hmm. and respond. Let us know how things are for you, where you're, where you're, you're, you're viewing us from and what you need from us because we want to be here to help and yes. that's what we're, we want to be about. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're here in the local area, come see us. We'd love to see you and meet mm-hmm. you and, and shake your hand uh, mm-hmm. or fist bump you, whatever works for <laughs> you. Uh, we're so grateful for you. We're grateful that we have the opportunity to be with you uh, in Christ. Um, We love you, and we hope to see you next week. Yes. Bye, guys.